Hello and welcome to Show and Tell, the podcast series from the RPG Academy, where we bring on a guest and we talk about something cool. Today, something cool, eh, it's a guest, and that would be John, also known as J.M. Perkins. You may know him from his uh, regular columns on Tribality, as well as the Adequate Commoner, which is a uh, Pathfinder 3.5 supplement that he wrote all about playing zero-level characters and otherwise non-classed characters, which I freaking love. And then he's also <laughs> currently working on a living setting called Salt in Wounds, which you can find at saltandwoundscampaign.com. A setting. Salt and Wounds Settings. Salt and Wounds Settings. There you go. Uh, dot com, which we will get all into that. John, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. Now, first off, for just you know transparency, you are A, a friend of the show, which makes you cool. Two, you're one of our <laughs> patrons, which makes you super cool. Uh, <laughs> three, you are a regular contributor to the Tribality website, which is in the RPG Academy Network. So you've just got so much going for you. I can't believe it's taken us this long to get you on the show. <laughs> but beyond that, you wrote The Adequate Commoner, which is the, the one of the main things that I want to talk about tonight. You know, you sent me a copy and I've been reading over it and I kind of joked, but like I talk so much about how I love starting characters at zero level and starting off that hero's journey. Like you can't do a hero's journey if you're already a hero, if you're already a badass. You have to start off as nobody. So when I do zero level characters, that's kind of the avenue that I'm going for is like, I want a hero's journey. And I don't know if that necessarily matches what you were going for. It was more of a survivalist theme. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and then like where the idea for the adequate commenter came from and what led you to write it? Sure. Um, Yeah. So the origin of the adequate commoner came out of, I thought it would be really fun to, and funny to write an optimization guide for commoners. (laughs) <laughs> you know, because especially in Pathfinder 3.5, uh, there's this whole vein of writing, which is optimization guides, which min-maxing can get a bad name, but I find them very useful because there are so many options out there. Having someone say, oh, you know, these are maybe options that you should look at. Just having that as a starting place and then designing the character to make it interesting to you besides just overpowered, I, I found that really interesting and cool. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> someone should do one about commerce. And then I started writing it. And then I kept writing it. Um, and then I kept writing it. And as I as I worked on it, I kept finding new angles on this, right? So perfect example, and one thing we talk about in the book is using commoners as a zero-level option, right? Because standard adventurers in D&D or Pathfinder, you're already a superhero. You are already an incredible fighter in this world that you're in. Um, you've already had extensive training. You can already call magical fire out of thin air. You are already someone who is ex- incredibly exceptional. So being a commoner and going zero level, it's fun to play some of the backstory that normally just kind of gets glossed over. No, you start as this awesome fighter. No, well, what were you before that? And and what maybe happened to you during that adventure that made you develop in that? So that's certainly one area. But like I said, as I kept writing it, I kept finding more and more angles. And, and part of that is because I was brought up by survivalists, right? So I've always had a real interest in asymmetric warfare and how ordinary people survive under really um, intense situations. And I, and I think living in a high fantasy world, as it's often presented, is a really dangerous world to live in. And most of the time, I think the way GMs run commoners, because no one really plays them, which we get into the book, but usually as an NPC, GMs often use them like, oh, they're waiting around pretty much for the heroes to save them. Right. Something bad happens. They're kind of out of luck until a hero kind of wanders by. So I was really interested in people don't actually operate that way. Um, some people would run away, certainly. 
But if you're living in a dangerous area, you're going to figure out strategies to survive or you're going to die. So I was really curious, well, what, given the rules being what they are, what could commoners actually do? I want to take a little bit, of like I guess, like a step back. So what is your history in getting into role-playing games? Because this the supplement is for 3.5 slash Pathfinder, uh, which, right. I, which I agree with you, the optimization. But there's games like Dungeon Crawl Classics, for example, comes to mind. And even 5th edition kind of toned that back a little bit. So I'm assuming, you did you start with 3.5? Is that where you came into the hobby? Right. Uh, I, that's actually absolutely right. I wrote it for Pathfinder and 3.5 because that's what I knew. Because actually, I was always interested in tabletop RPGs, but I'm, especially for a writer, new to the hobby. I've only been playing uh, for about four years. Um, and that's just because the way I grew up, D&D was completely forbidden. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, it was considered evil, so couldn't play it. Um, which, of course, made it way more attractive. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, uh, Caleb's not with us tonight, but he had a similar background, which he's touched on, that he, he grew up in a very religious home that also yep. basically kind of outlawed it. I was somewhere in the middle. I'm, I'm, based on your picture, I think I'm older than you. Uh, I grew up, uh, started playing in the early 80s when, you know, like Tipper Gore was trying to have it outlawed right along with Twisted Sister because it was, you know, corrupting the youth. So my parents were a little bit weary of it. And I remember my mother actually read the basic, I had the red box edition. She read through it and she wanted to talk to me about it because she was worried about some of the symbology and iconography. And, and I basically told her, it's like, it's just a game. We're having fun. And that was pretty much it. But so I didn't have someone say you can't do it, but I clearly had parents that were concerned about it. And to be honest, so I'm 32 years old. So I started playing when I was 28. I am so what it was... Day. Yeah. So what it was is, of course, it was forbidden. And then I went to college and, you know, I could have played, but I was playing video games. And I just didn't have a group. Um, and then I got an opportunity to sit down as something I thought I'd enjoy. And absolutely, I loved it. And I will say, after having written the book in Pathfinder 3.5, the reason I think the book works for that system where it wouldn't work for 5th edition is because of the sheer amount of player item and magic item options you have in Pathfinder 3.5. I thought that was really interesting, and it really opens up a lot of avenues for commoners to do interesting things, because there's all these other ways that they can potentially empower their character. And one of the options we have in the book, so of course the basic assumption is you're going to be playing as someone much, much weaker than an ordinary, what you'd expect an ordinary PC. But we're also interested in, okay, well, what would a quote-unquote commoner look like if if he could somehow be as powerful as other PCs. So we had options for using like the mythic rules for Pathfinder, where you have this commoner and they, they stay with the commoner progression. So they'd still act a little bit like a commoner, but they get this weird power source we thought would be interesting. Um, and also Pathfinder 3.5 is a great thing you can do, is we just had the gear hero, right? Like literally he's empowered because he's richer than everybody else. <laughs> and all of all of his ability, just what weird items can he acquire and put together? And so we thought that was interesting because, again, you're keeping with the core of the Commodore concept. Like, they don't have spells themselves. They don't have this incredible ability with weapons like a fighter does. But maybe they're able to get a magic item before anybody else is, does. And that gives them, you know, unique strategies. So basically they're Iron Man. Exactly. They're a man in a suit. That's exactly the example we use. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, so one of the things that you, you touched on there I, I just wanted to bring up was the uh, the idea of, like, the magic item sort of compensating for... Uh, the uh, different the difference between uh, a classless character and a classed character. Yep. And uh, th- there's a game I'm running right now with some of our other patrons. Uh, I mentioned on Twitter some they're called the Dark Hearts Crew. It's just some of our higher level patrons, and we play a game together. And uh, the game is called No More Heroes. And uh, 
basically what we did, we sent, we spent session zero creating a bunch of very vibrant back, uh, PC, NPC, sorry, using like, almost like fate rules. Like it was like, we came up with, uh, so we created these aspects for the, for the character so that we could just say, you know, this is the person's, you know, really greedy or they're the richest person in town, whatever. And then about three sessions into the game, their PCs disappeared without any explanation. And and they started playing these NPCs. Like they, they basically woke up and I said, okay, you're now playing this NPC. You're playing this NPC. And we've been doing that for a few sessions now. And, and the reason I did that was very similar to what I was reading in, in the early chapters of your book or your, your companion guide is that your tactics have to change. Yeah. When you're in, but when you're a PC and there's a problem the option is almost always to kill it. And yep. you can have groups that don't do that. And that's, that's you know, there's, we're talking in generalities here. But if smashing is at least always an option on the table, it almost always seems to be the one that we eventually get to. Oh, yeah. And I just, I really like the idea of, of changing that where you have to use very intricate role play, you know, creativity, tactics to overcome obstacles. And that's what I was trying to get with it. I was like, I'm going to take away all your magic stuff and I'm going to make you normal people, but you're still dealing with the same problems that the superheroes were dealing with yesterday. How do you deal with it differently? And I'm not going to say give away how it works out because eventually that's going to be a podcast. At least that's the goal. But it was very interesting. Oh, I think that's exactly it. You brought up zero level play, but I think the bigger topic is just telling different kind of stories. Because like you said, when players play with additional PC classes, even if they're not murder hobos, which, you know, I've been a murder hobo. I'm not going to talk smack about murder hobos. But even if they're not murder hobos, they expect the solution to the problem to be on their character sheet, right? They have some class ability. They have something that's special about their character that will let them solve this problem. When you play commoners or when you play any underpowered character in a setting, you don't have the solution on your character sheet. So how are you going to solve it? And I'd say the biggest tweak in thinking, both for players and for GMs, if you're going to play commoners or low power, the traditional kind of design is a GM creates like a scene, sets a scene. So there's lob over here and there's falling logs over here and there's the enemies over here, right? And it usually will be designed to challenge the players and maybe give the enemies an advantage or the enemies will just be very much stronger. I think when you're playing a commoner or underpowered game, it's really the players that have to design the scenario where they're going to trick their enemies into an area where they have an advantage. They're going to set an ambush. They're going to figure out how to use the terrain to their advantage. Um, they're going to find something you know unique about where they're at and, and really be clever and creative. And hopefully the players can do that, and hopefully the GMs can do it. But if they can, I think it creates this really compelling and very different style of play. Yeah, there was a there was a game I played in Cleveland. Uh, I used to live up in Cleveland several years ago with a with an extent. We played with a, a game group there for an extended period of time. And uh, it actually, as I'm saying this, the reason I'm getting tongue tied is I'm thinking about this is very similar to kind of like a George R. R. Martin thing that happened recently. But I swear it happened first. Um, <laughs> but I was playing a character, and I just sort of offhandedly picked uh, cooking as one of my professions. I think we were playing is either second edition or three point five. And uh, there was a situation where we needed to get to a nobleman, and uh, we ended up capturing his house chef, and then I ended up taking that position. So my <laughs> my cooking background is what allowed me to infiltrate the nobleman's you know household, and and that sounds right along the lines of what we're talking about here. Is that you know you you have to be super creative, and ultimately to me, and this is again me talking here, that's more rewarding. I personally think so. And really, it's that I think both games are styles of gaming are valid, but I think they actually get better 
for having the contrast, right? I think when you play super creative and you really uh, triumph because of something very clever you did, that's great. And then you can go back to playing the superhero and enjoy the power fantasy, and that'll be a lot of fun. And I just honestly think when everything's said and done, more diversity in gaming is always going to be better. Yeah, and I would agree as well. And, and we've said this you know, many times on the show, and just to, to clarify here, if you like to play that type of game, absolutely go for it. Have fun. That's yep. all that matters. But understand that there are other different styles of play. And A, you should maybe try them, because you may not know that you enjoy playing a commoner until you've done it. Uh, right. Or you may not realize that how much playing a murder hobo can be so much fun. I mean, you had a bad day at work. <laughs> your boss made you mad because they told you to do something. And then when you did it, they yelled at you because they don't remember they told you to do it or something. And you just want to kill something. You just want to roll a D20, <laughs> get a high number, make something explode because yep. it's fun. Absolutely both ways are, are fine to play. But for me, ultimately, I'm, I have more of a sense of satisfaction and enjoyment when I try to create the most convoluted, possible solution to the easiest <laughs> uh, option or uh, obstacle in front of me well and, and it's funny you mentioned um your your uh, character having this cooking special that he was able to use actually the sample adventure we use in adequate commoner is called cook's day out and all the main pcs the sample pcs we provide there are failed adventurers that have decided to be cook come cooks <laughs> but they enlisted with a caravan i thought was just a normal trade caravan but it turns out to be you know, a group of adventurers going on their high adventure. So now they're really trying to not die as they're getting dragged into this <laughs> kind of high adventure. So yeah, I thought I thought it was pretty funny. It's funny. I guess cooks. It's all cooks all the way down. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, again, just that I'm I'm also very famous for using my movie references. So, are you familiar with the movie Superman Returns, the Brown and yeah. Brandon Routh movie? I personally oh, yeah. think that's a very underrated movie. I I think it's great. Uh, I was a huge fan of it. But the thing to me that I always thought was interesting is that James Marston's character is the hero of that movie. Yeah. Do you remember the scene where he basically, he, he isn't Superman, but he puts his life on the line to rescue Superman. And to me, that was the part that was the most heroic, was the commoner saving the hero, uh, which then allowed the hero to you know do what only the hero could do. But if it wasn't for his character, I don't remember his character's name, but he's Cyclops from the new X-Men movies. <laughs> If he didn't jump in and risk his life, then Superman wouldn't be alive. And again, and that's the sort of things I gravitate to is I gravitate towards normal people put in extraordinary circumstances, which I think is also a reason why I'm a fan of like Stephen King novels is he's great at that is he takes normal people and put them in these crazy situations. And then you just see how they adapt and, you know, react and usually die in some horrible way. Uh, (laughs) But I find that endlessly fascinating more than just going, okay, I have magical powers so I can defeat you. Yep. Well, and I think Stephen King's a great example of someone who really does focus on ordinary people dealing with extra normal threats. And again, we tend to tell stories uh, about very highly trained people or people with special powers, and they're having to deal with a threat. But, you know, the other thing that I did with Adequate Commoner I wanted to look at is just the historical context. Because, again, we'll tell stories about the super awesome warrior guy, but most of the fighting and most of the dying throughout history has been done by people who are not professional soldiers. They were conscripts. Um, they were farmers. They were kind of dragged into this war either because you know their lord told them to go or because the war just came to them. And they had to figure out how to deal with that. And again, tons of strategies. Some avoid, some will give up, but some actually will rise to the call, rise to the challenge. And I thought that was really interesting. The other example I bring up in the book, uh, which I think is fascinating, of course, we think of ninja as 
these super mystic warrior assassins. But historically, ninja were just the peasant class. Who got tired of the samurai's bullshit. Exactly. Because, yeah, it sucked to be a peasant. It always sucks to be a peasant. It's great to be king. sucks to be a peasant. <laughs> um, and they don't have a lifetime of training. And, and in fact, throughout history, a lot of the pe- peasants had to deal with malnourishment. So they're like literally smaller than the warrior caste, right? They're, they're smaller. They haven't had a lifetime of training. But still, they find ways to fight back. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And I thought that was a really interesting way to tell stories in, in Pathfinder D&D that you know, maybe is a little bit harder to do if you're just looking at the PC classes. And also, you, know, you look at so much of the quote-unquote really cool weaponry from, again, Ninja is a good example of this, but also a bunch of pole arms from Europe. They're modified farm equipment. Right? Like this is stuff people used to grow food or tend to crops, but they turned it into a weapon because that's what they had. Yeah, I, uh, I studied martial arts as a child for a very long time, and we were ta- you know taught the traditional weapons like the tonfa was used to beat the grain, sickles were used obviously to harvest mm-hmm. it, bow staffs were ca- used to carry like buckets of water, size were basically pitch or hay pitchforks. So all the traditional weapons you associate with ninja were farm implements that were just modified because peasants weren't allowed to have weapons. Yep. So if a samurai saw you with a weapon, they could just kill you uh, on the spot and you had no retribution for that. So yeah, it, it really sucked to be a commoner in feudal Japan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And another perfect example is you look at, um, you know, the rise of the English longbow, right? Like this is, this is a cheat, right? They're not, they're not going to fight in full armor and they're going to minimize the advantages that, you know, all the armored knights have. Uh, in the same way, like, you use ranged weapons when the guy wants to t- attack you melee. And you you do, you fight them how they don't want to fight you. Right. That, that's not exactly right, but there's a, there's a Sun Tzu quote in there very similar to that. Like, uh, you meet on the battlefield of your choosing type of a thing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, now, where could people go to find the Adequate Commoner? Is it on DriveThru? Is it available for purchase anywhere? Yeah, um, it's available on DriveThru RPG. It's on available at RPG Now, which I think is kind of the same thing. Um, and it's also available on Paizo. Okay, excellent. Now, we kind of touched on, obviously, the zero level and then just classless. I remember you talked about the, the, the mythical. Was there any other aspects of that that you want to touch on before we move into your campaign setting? Not, I think I think that's a pretty good like overview of some of the unique options. Of course, I made new feats, new traits. We did new alchemical items. We talked a lot about tactics in the book and just how a lot of, with a rule set as complicated as Pathfinder, it's very easy to overlook certain advantages. Um, and mostly, like you'll know that dim light makes you have a mischance because the DM reminds you when he set up the scenario where you're at a disadvantage, right? With playing commoners, you have to know what dim light does because you want to force your opponents to face you in dim light, but you don't face them in that way. And so, again, like you can you can cast entanglement if you're a wizard, but if you're a commoner, maybe you can lure people on the ground that's um, unfavorable. So again, like the the Braveheart situation, you uh, coat the ground with pitch the night before and then light it on fire. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you dig pit traps. You know, you you show up earlier than anybody else does and you set up the battlefield you know you're not going to win because you can bleed better than the other guy you're going to win because you sweated for a lot longer before the orcs even arrived excellent so uh there will be links in the show notes for all the things that we're talking about but you know in particular the adequate commenter if someone wants to pick that up i'll make sure there's a a link in the show note for them to get to it i would love for people to buy my book please feel free It's again, I, I, I'll be honest, obviously I got a free copy from you, which is thank you very much for that. Oh, I'm happy uh, ha- to share it. Having looked through it is something I definitely would have paid for if I hadn't written it myself. 
<laughs> oh, well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about um, one of the things that you're working on right now is your campaign setting, uh, Salt and Wounds. And you mentioned that this came from a tribality article that you had written, and it just sort of organically exploded from there. So why don't you talk a little bit about where the the original idea came from and then kind of where it's moved to now? Oh, yeah. So original idea, there was a poster in the, I believe it's the RPG Net forums named Thomas T., um, who I'd love to get in contact with, but he kind of dropped out of contact. But back in 2004, he had this idea of, like, you can't kill the Tarrasque. Maybe you can tie it up, basically, with, you know, magic, immovable harpoons. And then once you do that, maybe people start eating it. And what would a city look like? And so I read this first little idea, and then there's, like, 20 pages of forum posts about this. And I, I left. I didn't read any of them. Just because I love this idea so much, I knew that I wanted to do my own version of it on whatever level I could. I, I, I just had to write this, right? And so I love this idea of taking this really iconic monster from D&D, the Tarrasque, and doing something really weird and really different with it. So yeah, what happens if you have a city that is built around perpetually slaughtering the same giant Godzilla monster and eating that? You know, what are, what are the magical effects? What are the economic effects? What are the cultural effects? And so that's where the Salt and Wound setting came from. Um, as part of my column for Tribality, I was doing system agnostic concepts, which Salt and Wounds was. And, you know, it just got a big audience. I, it was really popular. I really liked writing it. So I spun it off in its own thing. Now it has its own website, uh, saltandwoundsetting.com. And I'm just running with it. So I'm trying to do a post a week. Most recently, I posted about the Heart's Blood Marsh, which is basically the concept is, so the Tarrasque is always bleeding, right? And its blood has magical properties. So it was completely transforming the landscape around where it was imprisoned. This was uh, high up in the mountains, very cold. Uh, it's actually now humid and almost tropical because of the heat of the, the constantly spilling this creature's blood. So a druid was really worried that this blood, which was forming a river, was going to run down into the sea and potentially be devastating to the whole world. So what he did is he actually created an uh, artificial swamp specifically designed to process and render inert all this magical blood. So he imported all these mushrooms and all these different creatures from all over the world just to try to make sure this blood wouldn't spread any further. And then actually ended up merging with the fungus to try to keep this weird artificial ecosystem going. So that's just one example of trying to figure out what happens when you have this really weird setup and how do people react. So, and this is something where you're, you're contributing to this every week. There's a new post that further expands the setting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like I said, most recently I wrote about this uh, location around Salt and Wounds, which was this Heart Splits March. But I'll do a post about, you know, a, an NPC there. Or um, I'll do a post about, you know, the, the god of butchers, who is a minor god everywhere else. But here in the city, he is a major, major deity. And yeah, just building it kind of organically and, and really wanting to have a conversation with the audience and get their input on what I develop and, and what gets developed and where we go from here. For someone who's brand new, who's just hearing about this now and they come to your website, how much of a backlog, how, like how robust is this setting already? And then like how, how long do you intend this to go? Is this perpetual or do you have sort of like an end date where you'll maybe compile it into a book? I... Uh, so I'm doing a Patreon for it, and what I what I told, said on the Patreon, which I, I mean, um, I'm going to be writing about this for at least the next year. I'm doing about a post a week. It'll probably be a little bit less than a post a week because stuff happens. But if my first goal for the Patreon is if I can get up to $50 a month, I'll do a post a week for sure. So honestly, just for the next year, I'll be writing about this. I'm really building this Patreon 
just wanting to talk to the people who are fans of this, talk about where, you know, what work with them to see what we want to do with it. And at the end of the year, really assess, like, do I want to make this into a full featured setting book or what? Now, I will say one of the unique things about it is, of course, it came from my system agnostic column. And it, even though it mentions the Tarrasque, it's not specific to any one rule set. I'm really trying to set it up and give you enough so you could easily play it in Fate or in 5th edition or in Pathfinder because I, I really wanted to create something that had a little bit more longevity and I thought that would be a good way to do it. Although, uh, again, depending on where the community goes, I will be creating, you know, I'll be doing the, the witch patron that's unique to Salt and Wounds um, and, you know, doing the 5th edition options for that or doing the um, the barbarian Tarax totem where it's what happens to people who are eating this meat and maybe aren't processing out kind of the magical effects and how that's transforming them. All right, excellent. And so again, to get to the content, it's the the website Salt and Wounds setting. Right. And um, I would just go, uh, I have it set up so if you're a player um, and you're thinking about doing this, you can just click on For Players, which will just kind of give you the basic information without any of the secrets. And then I also have For GMs, which is all the information, even stuff your players won't know. And I have it broken up by, um, you know, monsters, uh, the K- NPCs, um, a little bit there that's specifically the Pathfinder, just some rules about the mutation table and stuff. And then, uh, you know, some stuff the fans have contributed. Yeah, right on the top, I've broken it up into, if you're a player, click here. If you're a GM, click here. Now, if they go to your Patreon campaign or your ca- Patreon page, which feel free to give us that URL if you know it. It's usually patreon.com slash something. JM Perkins, yeah. J.M. Perkins. Is there any exclusive content or anything that you get from going to that website or for being a patron? Yes, there is. Um, so a uh, couple different rewards. Um, of course, voting on how things go. Uh, we have um, reward level where you can see all my notes or get written in. But the big thing um, on the Patreon, I'm doing kind of design note posts. So the first uh, post that's public now is my back of the envelope calculations for how much the Jurassic could actually feed. So that weird, wonky, like fantasy math of like, okay, well, I think it's as big as four gray whales and it has a regeneration of this. So how much meat can it actually grow? And uh, again, I, you'll, you'll you check the math and I would love to hear if you think I'm wrong. But, um, <laughs> but my first calculation is crazy. The terrasque could feed th- the Pathfinder terrasque, I should be specific, could feed three million people a day. That's going to be a surplus unless you have a really big city. Yeah, no, and, and actually, they have a huge surplus on what they do about it. And then also, weird stuff like, so ghouls are a big part of the city, um, and they actually have legal status, because they just keep them completely stuffed with rotting Tarrasque meat. So they have kind of this quasi-legal status, but they're ghouls still. So it's just this weird, wacky place, and, and really trying to look at what happens when you have this completely alien, you know, situation. You have a limited amount of wheat. And so, yeah, so it was fun. It's fun doing the design notes. The one that's not public yet, that's still private, I just talk about how I don't want to name everything the blood, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, so what do you do? Like, so I talk about how I, how much I love the word sanguine, of course, uh, which, if in case you're, your listeners don't know, of course, means both bloody and hopeful. So it's, it's always fun to use. But um, you can play with, like, Greek and Latin. And just I, I'm doing a series there, just like my design notes of, like, oh, here's why I made went this way instead of this way. Or here's what I was thinking about when I did this. Or here's oh, how ex- much the Tarrasque could feed. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because uh, I've mentioned this before as well, that I, I'm kind of fascinated with the Tarrasque, uh, which I'm very happy that you pronounce it the same way I do because I'm from Kentucky. I always assume I'm wrong, but that's how <laughs> I pronounce it as well. 
But like, even though like we and we joke about how this is a Dungeons and Dragons, you know, game. Mostly we play Dungeons and Dragons, but you don't always get a lot of dragons like that. You know, certain GMs, of course, but within my history, very few dragons in my Dungeons and Dragons. But the Tarask is like sort of like my dragon. Like I love to use the Tarask in interesting ways, and I've I've used the Tarask several times in my games usually more of like a background thing. And I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again in case someone's new. They may have come to my show because of you, uh, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, I always liked it. Like, I grew up on like the Godzilla movies too. Oh, yeah. Like, you, know, um, you know, monster movies and the old ones within the rubber suits type of thing. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I love the idea of the Tarrasque as being the only hope. It's the nuclear <laughs> option uh, where, you know, I, actually, I had one campaign that we started a while ago before the podcast where one of the first things that happened like as first level characters uh, they found the location of the sleeping Tarrasque and it was just, it was a secret that they had that holy crap here's this thing that we see asleep that we can't ever tell anybody about and then the idea was over the course of the campaign there would become something that was so terrible that the only option was to wake the Tarrasque and let it kill the thing for them. <laughs> nice. I've never quite got it to work out, but I've tried multiple times. So yeah, I am fascinated. So that alone, I'm definitely going to be checking out the website because I just, I, again, the, the Tarrasque is something that has always fascinated me uh, in the game. For some reason, I don't even know why, really. It just does. Well, and and I love the Tarrasque. I love Kaiju. One of the things I really like about the Tarrasque, as opposed to a dragon, right, is... The Tarrasque feels much more like a force of nature, in in the good way that Godzilla is a force of nature. You know what I mean? It's right. Not, yeah. It's not even necessarily evil. Like it's horrible if you're in its way. Like it feels like what it's doing evil. But it, it's not even smart enough to be evil. It's just a thing. You know, it just does what it's going to do. And I, I really like, and that's classic kaiju movie of making this horrible monster in the last hope. And in fact, I think that's what you have to do if you have the recurring monster, right? Like because they had to do that with Godzilla. Is like when you're going to make 50 Godzilla movies, eventually it has to be Godzilla saving people because you've done everything else with them. Right. And that that's basically where it's turned to now. Even the most recent Godzilla, he was the good guy or she was a good guy. Yeah. I don't think they gave it a sex, but yeah, like it basically was like, no, this thing needs to be left around, which makes me think. And again, I haven't read your stuff yet for this. So I'm hopefully I'm not stealing your thunder or repeating something you've done, but mm-hmm. the Tarrasque serves a purpose. It, it is a part of nature. It is there for a reason. And this city has stopped it from yep. its normal pattern. So what So what else is that doing? Like, obviously, the world around the, the city is changing. But is there something somewhere far, far away that's getting really, really bad because yeah. the Tarrasque isn't around? So I haven't gotten there yet. But I will get into there um, when I write about the Circle of Release, which is the group of druids working in Salt and Moon secretly to release the Tarrasque, to bring balance back to the natural order. And so when I write about them, I'll talk about their reasoning of why what they what they see in the natural world that they think is being fucked up by the Tarrasque. It's an absence. Excellent. All right. So one thing you, you mentioned there, I want to I want to kind of transition to uh, as well is bef- before we start recording, you and I were chatting a little bit, and you talked about how you like to sort of see uh, fantasy taken to the extremes and how unusual and almost alien things can get. And you mentioned specifically the Planescape setting is one of your favorites. Do you want to oh. just expound a little bit about that setting and why you love it? Yeah, so uh, the Planescape setting was my first D&D setting, and it was before I even played tabletop because of uh, Planescape Torment, which is one of the you know pinnacles for me of video RPGs. So I just love that setting, and I've I've eaten it up ever since. 
what we were talking about, so much of fantasy, because Tolkien just towers over fantasy, so much of fantasy is Tolkien-esque. And that's great, because he was a master, right? And you have other influences. But most of the time, when people are doing tabletop gaming, they're playing in the kind of the pseudo-medieval European setting. And I just really like the concept of taking magic as far as it'll go. And if you establish something as true, like, how does that change everything? So Planescape is a perfect example. We were talking about Eberron, of making um, magic as a stand-in for technology, but also it has weird rules itself, so how does that change things? Um, there's, of course, there's a famous homebrew setting called the Tippyverse, which is really well done, and it just talks about how having high-level magic anywhere in the world changes everything about the world. But yeah, uh, it speaks specifically about Planescape. I just love this idea of the great multiversal melting pot and uh, you know how what that would look like and how very different monsters would get along. The other thing too I like is I like the cons- I like taking monsters to their extreme. So again, Tarasque's example of, of using something differently. But one of the things I brought up before is I like looking at <laughs> low-level monsters that could cause the apocalypse. Right? Like um, uh, shadows are a good example because they can kill someone and create a new shadow. So if you had one shadow fly into a village and just go through the wall and attack commoners, within like I did the math one time, within like five minutes or something there's like a hundred shadows and then they go <laughs> towards like a slightly uh, bigger village and now there's like 5,000 shadows and then those all go towards a city and then there's like a million shadows and, and like literally the world could be over in one night and no one could stop it if shadows were smart. Or there's monsters that um, reproduce in, in heat Right, so if you just took one of those, I forget what they're called. Um, I feel like there's some kind of slime or mold, but they reproduce in heat. They're just low level, but they, you know, if you use a fireball, then there's ten of them. Um, but if you just threw one of those in a volcano, like it would be world ending. <laughs> so I'm I'm always fascinated by that, right? Like I I really like treating the rules as written, right? Like it works this way. So what would happen if it really did work that way? And that's just a personal fixation and and th- something I I love to do in gaming. So are you a fan of the Planescape setting? I actually, I will have to apologize. I have never actually played in the Planescape setting. Um, well, again, you're probably a busy man. I highly recommend the RPG. It's from, I think, 98, uh, Planescape Torment. Um, you can get it on good old games for like 10 bucks. It's amazing. You know, one of the top rated games, and it, it deserves that. Very D&D, but completely different in being the Planescape setting. Completely different than probably any D&D setting you've ever played. And it's one of the things. It's just like it's a hole in my nerd nerddom for some reason. Like I'm, I've I've been in the periphery of it. I know a little bit about the lore and some of the you know the big NPCs in the world. I kind of have an idea of what it is. But uh, I had one game we played in where we were rotating GMs, and one of the GMs took us to Planescape, and we were in the city. Is it the city of Brass? Is that what it's called? Uh, isn't the city of Doors? It's the City of Doors. I thought it had another name. I'm getting things confused. Sigil. City of Brass. Sigil, that's it. Yeah, Sigil, the City of Doors. Yeah, so we were in Sigil, and then basically that was like the cliffhanger. Is like, we've been taken to the City of, of Doors. Dun, dun, dun. We changed GMs, and we immediately left. Because <laughs> so, the next GM was like, I'm not dealing with that. <laughs> so then we just went away. So that that was my experience. I've been in this, the City of Doors for about 12 minutes. So so you you the... You, the one thing you know about the setting is it's entirely anticlimactic. Like, <laughs> yes. everyone who goes there, there's a huge buildup and then nothing. 
And then nothing. But you did touch on Eberron, which I have said many, many times is my favorite setting, which again, I've not experienced Planescape, so perhaps that's not a fair you know, uh, comparison. But it does the same thing that you do in that you take the, to the logical conclusion. You know, if then equals sort of thing. Yeah. Because uh, I've said it before as well that most of the D&D games I've played in are basically, you know, pseudo-European uh, with just magic. And it's fun if you don't think about it. You know, it's like a popcorn movie that you have a good time at the game. But when you're driving home, you start thinking, well, you know, that really didn't make sense. You know, yeah. if if that was this, then that didn't make sense. And that, you know, that's fine. We're just having fun at the table. But it is kind of a fun creative exercise to, to try to go down that line of reasoning, which is what you're doing with this campaign setting. Oh, yeah. And that's what Eberron has tried to do. And again, it's still, it's Keith Baker and his playtester's vision. I really like it, but I'm sure there's people who, you know, magical trains just doesn't do it for them. Yeah. Uh, but I love the idea of if magic was real, how does that change the world? And it would be world changing. I mean, not to get overly political, but obviously right now in our country, there's a lot of debate about guns and, you know, for or against people are passionate. At, you know, it doesn't matter which side I'm on. People are passionate. But you could really have a very realistic situation if if people could just cast fireball mm-hmm. anytime they wanted to. Would you just let anyone into your town? Yeah, I mean that's like yeah. I mean it doesn't make sense that you would be like oh you just come on in. You could potentially be a a walking nuclear bomb, but we're cool with that because you look like a kindly old man. Yep. And you know maybe some people would like to take that line of reasoning and go. All magic's outlawed. You know, we kill all wizards on site and all sorcerers on site because it just—it's unfair to everyone else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, the the how you divide power, um, how, who has what power, and how the other powers feel about that is huge. You know, I'll I'll give you an example of uh, another one of my popular articles on tribality, where I, again I took this concept of. I wanted to take an innocuous magic item and make it horrifying, like find <laughs> find the terror in something. And uh, so the item I chose was the Ring of Sustenance, which if you're not familiar, of course, is just this little ring that your character can weigh. Basically, you don't have to eat, and it cuts down your sleeping, and it's nice, right? Like, you don't have to worry about eating and drinking now. Awesome. It, in my 3.5 days, that was like my go-to. If I got a magic item to start with, that was one of my first ones to go oh, for because yeah. then I just didn't have to worry about it. It's classic, right? And great. Like, you don't have to worry about it. So I was really interested in, okay, so you have a world that can create this. Like, what could possibly go wrong with this? Like, what's what's the worst thing could happen with this? So what I did is I wrote about the home of the hundred saved. So the idea is uh, there was a prophecy that some calamity was going to befall the world. So this, it's not really clear what, what it was, but the basics are this group of people built basically a fallout shelter, which I was told was very similar to Earthdawn. And um, so they built basically a magical fallout shelter. And so they're getting it set up. And as an emergency measure, they have a hundred rings of sustenance brought here. And they're going to set it up so they can grow their own food and blah, blah, blah. But the calamity happens early, so they have to evacuate and they have to get in this thing. So they go in and they're magically sealed and they have a hundred rings of sustenance. That was 5,000 years ago. So what happened was they only have a hundred people in there and literally there is nothing to do and now they are inbred and there's huge competition when you have a kid to get somebody else's rings of sustenance because that's the only source of food unless you're eating people so you have these inbred insane people that are you know what's five thousand that would be uh ten thousand generations removed from the rest of the world that have spent 
their entire life living in darkness, trying to figure out how to kill the other people down there to take one of their rings or so that they can have a baby if they have a kid or just because they want to taste meat. Like they're desperate for sensation. So that was just one example of I did of I just took, again, ring of sustenance, classic item, nothing really gone there, and just pushing it as far as it can go, you could support this really weird society and what would the people look like who, who lived in that? Yeah, I mean, that's like uh, the, the Plato's Cave, but like, Really effed up. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and so that was that was system agnostic. But I talked about how you know these guys could be. You could easily have them be sorcerers, right? Um, you could have them be like incredibly gifted warriors, but like literally they can't even talk. But they've worked so hard at like mastering their martial arts, and but they have terrible tactics because when something new comes in, they want to taste it, right? Because they've never tasted anything. And everything that was down there, all the clothes, all of it's rotted away. The only thing that's left was anything that was made of metal and flesh. <laughs> Don't have a lot to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a, a conversation ender. But well, and I should I should point out, um, in addition to writing for games, I also do a fair bit of horror writing. Um, so I was I was pretty proud of uh, House of the Hundred uh, Saved. All right. So uh, do you have any other um, any other work that you want to point to, or any other links that we want to share? Um, uh, you know, um. I've got stuff, but Salt and Moon Settings and Adequate Commoner are my two big projects right now um, that I'm probably most proud of. But yeah, I'd love to continue talking. Like, so what are examples of interesting things you've done with magic items or or having magical in the world? How? What's a good example of you changing how the world operates because there's this magic in it? There's a, a setting that I've kind of been working on in the back of my head uh, for quite a while, and I sort of touched on on it a minute ago with like the gun control thing in it that. Uh, that basically elves are like a tyranny. They there was a, a war hundred years ago or so. Uh, all the nations united against the the drow, and they were able to win. But everyone took heavy losses. The 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 surface elves fared best, and then they took the opportunity to sort of take over. And so they fear magic because it's the equalizer. Oh yeah. You know they they have all the numbers. They have all the magic. So magic users are the only people that can have any shot of overthrowing them. So they very tightly control that. So you get to the point where uh, magic is allowed, but it is heavily regulated. And then, uh, you know, if, like if you were walking around with a spell book, then, a, then an elf can pull it from you at any time, inspect it. If there's any spells you're not allowed to have, which is basically any offensive spells, then it can be confiscated. You could be killed. You know, it's, it's very terrible. Sorcerers are outlawed. So anyone who's an innate magic user are killed instantly. So then you have this situation where people go every year to have their spellbook inspected, and then they've started basically doing almost like a, a suitcase bomb uh, or a suicide bomber where they have purposely put nothing but you know glyphs of explosion in the book <laughs> to try to take out as many of these evil elves as they can. So you know, so you're kind of turning this world on its head. Where I know this is you know again it's a hot topic right now, but like you have these terrorists who are the good guys. You know, they are trying to kill as many elves as they can because they're so evil, but they're doing it in these ways, similar to like we talked about with the ninja back in feudal Japan. That's the only way they can fight. They can't fight fair because they're going to get destroyed. So they have to be sneaky. But that's only one small aspect of the setting. Uh, there's actually, uh, we may be starting a campaign in it right now, which makes me really excited. Nice. Is, um, is there something called the Singed? And uh, I wrote a little short, like a opening chapter on a novel I, years and years and years ago on it, where like the worst offense that an elf can do uh, is to be excommunicated. And they, they're what's then called singed. They uh, castrate them or the female equivalent. You can't have kids, basically. Uh, they bob your ears. 
they shave your hair because those are the the visible attributes that recognize you as an elf. Uh, you are no longer an elf, and then they actually take like a skull, metal skull cap that's been heated in coals and affix it to your head so that your hair can never grow back, and you become uh, a castless. You're the untouchables. You know, just jaywalking at that point is a punishable by death offense. Anyone aids you in any way, that's a punishable by death offense. So really the only thing these singed have left is criminal aspects. Like they have to be criminals or they just die. And that's this one aspect. It's a very Firefly-ish world in a way too, uh-huh. where you play good bad guys. Yeah. Well, and I was also thinking about maybe maybe it has uh, shades of Shadowrun without the technology. I'm not as familiar with Shadowrun either. So, I mean, I'm getting like the idea of like the uh, giant corporations that control everything aspect. Was there something I was, more? I was more, I was more referring to, and again, maybe, maybe this is not, won't be how this, the, the um, setting goes, but kind of the basic assumption is that the players in the setting will be criminals. They will be, um, you know, operating in the face of an overwhelming authority and uh, they can be good or bad, but they are going to just by the na- their nature, probably going to be criminals. Or at least they're, you know, legally they're going to be criminals because if anyone's playing a singe, then everyone else is associating with the singe, which is then punishable by death. So, so yeah, it's even if you're like, you know, you're the Simon of the sh- of the crew that's the good guy, you're still hanging out with bad people, so you're still a bad guy. Oh, well, you know, and the other thing too, we've talked about like doing technology in an interesting or magic in an interesting way. What I would be really interested for your setting, and again, just spitballing here. Sure. Yeah. Nope. So did you hear about the reputation system they're trying to enact in China at the moment? No. Okay, so think of credit score, Yeah. but linked to your Facebook profile, so that if you play, because the Chinese authorities don't like people playing video games, if you play a video game, your credit score goes a little bit down. Um, if you talk about certain political topics in a way that's not good, um, your credit score goes down. And also just think you're linked to all your friends, and so if your credit score goes down, your friend's credit score goes down. So this whole reputation system and this idea of just a nudge, right? Just, they're not going to be potentially throwing people in prison. They're just going to be ranking you lower. um, And potentially you won't be able to get a visa if you're ranked below a certain level or you won't be able to get this or that. I would be really interested uh, for your setting when you have this overwhelming um, elf authority. It'd be really cool if you could figure out a way to magically have reputation system as a form of social control. Hmm. Of course, the thing that jumped in my head immediately was the Meow Meow Beans episode of Community. <laughs> exactly that. It's exactly Meow Meow Beans. Um, China's <laughs> doing it for real, but it would be, I think that would be a really interesting way of preventing a totalitarian government via these elves. Um, and you, you could, it would be, I, I haven't seen it done. So I think it could be an interesting element. And I think it could do a lot of really interesting plot hooks of like, they have to figure out how to, to circumvent this reputation system, which is always on. They want to get in someplace, but their credit score is too low. So do they find a way to inflate their credit score legally or illegally? Do they have to do a good thing right. to get a good enough credit score to then go do the bad thing they were trying to do? Oh, yeah. Well, and, and again, maybe your characters aren't criminals, right? Maybe they are people who um, their ancestors uh, rebelled against the elves, right? So they are magically marked as being the descendant of a traitor. And they're trying to prove that, no, 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 we are not a traitor. Even though my great-great-grandfather fought in that war... I am not a traitor. I I believe in, you know, this this government and this level of control. Yeah, it's it's all good for everybody. Just, you know. Yeah. Just yeah. Very cool. 
All right. So if you are a, a long-term listener of the Show & Tell episodes, you'll know that we, for a while we were doing a little game like a choose-your-own-adventure, which we've been terrible about doing. Uh, but I do have a segment for you tonight if you're willing to play along. I am. All right. Excellent. So for those of you who may not be fully aware, this is something we started in with our guests on Show & Tell a while ago. Like I said, we, we haven't been consistent because sometimes our Show & Tells are like the night of, like, hey, let's do this. So we haven't had a chance to prepare. Uh, but basically, we're playing a little choose-your-own-adventure game. So some of our previous guests, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but they've made some choices, Very again, very much along the lines of a choose-your-own-adventure game. And so at the point that you are going to pick up the story is you are a wizard. Uh, you have chosen an onyx pebble as your only implement, and you are in this labyrinth of caves, and a couple goblins have gone past you, and you are now following them. So the the last choice was to follow the goblins. Okay. I'm following along the goblins. I have an onyx pebble. You have an onyx pebble with you. You were sent here by your master uh, as a, a, a chest of bravery. Okay. And uh, so you follow the goblins for, we'll say, about an hour, and they continue to lead you deeper and deeper and deeper into this labyrinth of tunnels. The chances of you getting out on your own at this point are probably pretty slim. Well, I was going to ask, what does it smell like? It was very dank, and you could hear, like, you know, the, the dripping of water uh, on the floor and maybe a s- smell of some, like, fetid, rotted flesh. Uh, but as you've gotten deeper and deeper, it's actually starting to get really warm uh, and very humid. You're starting to perspire. And uh, at the point where your decision is going to be made is you kind of follow them. You're at a, at, a, at a quick distance or a, a short distance. You follow them through an archway, and there's this just oppressive red glow. And there's an entire like latticework maze of these arching bridges over a flow of lava. So just, you know, think of like uh, 27 balls of yarn that were thrown down and all these little lines are just interweaving over and under each other, but they all are above this river of lava. So far down below you, you see a gathering of goblins. There's easily 500 of them. It's a huge horde of goblins, larger than you've probably, you know, in, in recent history in this, in this area. And there is one goblin in particular who seems to be leading them through some sort of chant. And as they are chanting, the lava actually continues to boil and roil as if it's getting invigorated by their chant. So here's your decision point, and it's just pretty broad. What are you going to do? Um, So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast Unseen Servant, and I'm going to uh, near where the goblins are. And I'm going to order my Unseen Servant to scoop up some lava and to throw it at the head goblin's face. Okay. And uh, for everyone else, you have to come back into our next show and tell to hear how that resolves itself. I really want to know what it, how that resolves. <laughs> that's the whole point. We want people to come back and listen <laughs> to the next episode. So that's you what and we your cliffhangers. <laughs> we got to get better at this so that we do it every time because it is a lot of fun. So it is a lot John of fun. Uh, or JM, uh, however, again, you write us JM Perkins, but you are, you are John. If you Google search John Perkins, you'll find a guy who wrote Confessions of Economic Hitman, which is not me. <laughs> but if you want to buy his book, too, I hear it's good, right? My, the title alone. How, how <laughs> great a title is that? Confessions <laughs> of an Economic Hitman. Right? <sighs> that should be, that should be, if you're playing Fate, that should be your high concept for a character sometime. Your high concept aspect is Economic Hitman. That actually does sound a lot like an adequate commoner, to be honest. <laughs> He's like the banker who finds a way to bring down the the mob boss. You know, basically we we caught Capone that way, right? Yeah, on uh, on tax charges. 
<laughs> Excellent. Well, again, John, thank you so much for coming on. I do appreciate uh, your time tonight. You know, again, you're a friend of the show. You're a patron. You, you support us. Uh, I'm happy to have you on for the work that you've done. And I hope that maybe in the future we can collaborate on something, even if it's just a game over the internet. I'd love to. And thank you so much for having me on. As I mentioned when I emailed you, I'm a huge fan. Um, happy to support you guys. Uh, you do great work. And just last, last little reminder, if that's okay. Uh, so, Adequate Commoner, you can find on RPG Now. And also, it's just www.saltandwoundsetting.com. Uh, if you have time to take a look at either of those, I'd be much obliged. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. And to everyone else, this has been Michael and John. Thank you so much, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google Plus at The RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.